are listening to Payers, Providers, and Patients Oh My. I'm Joe Records. And I'm Pyle Nanavetti. Today we're continuing our discussion about the medical loss ratio. As you'll recall from part one, we discussed what the medical loss ratio is and why it's important. Today we'll get into a little bit more detail about how the MLR is determined for plans and some of the compliance risks that can arise under MLR requirements. When we left the discussion last time, Xavier was discussing how pervasive MLR requirements are and how they touch every aspect of the healthcare system. Today, we'll begin by getting into some detail on how the MLR is calculated. When we oversimplify the MLR, we usually say that it's a ratio of medical costs over total revenue where we distinguish between claims costs and administrative costs. But of course, there's a little more to it than that. You're touching on two important points that I want to make sure to get into additional detail on. First is the framework here, the robust body of law regulation and guidance that dictates how medical loss ratios are calculated, includes a lot of information on which dollars fall on which side of the line. And to oversimplify, we're talking about claims costs versus administrative costs. Obviously, the financial incentive for a plan trying to meet an MLR is to get as many expenses as possible to fit the characterization of claims costs, etc. So what are the ways that plans can get their costs to fit the definition of claims costs, etc.? There are a couple of ways to approach this, each of which is not without peril. Because as you already noted, Joe, the critical question from an accounting standpoint, and not accounting in the sense of generally accepted accounting principles, but in terms of how one buckets this in the reporting form, although of course the accountants and the actuaries have a very important role to play, is ensuring a very clear through line how we're taking a given expenditure and deciding to report it on the form. The guidance says payments to third-party vendors and does not define third-party vendor can only count as claims, as incurred claims, if the third-party vendor is providing a clinical service with its own employees. This creates challenges for a health plan because of line of sight into its contractual counterparties. PBMs are a classic example of this that are called out multiple times in the commercial guidance. When a PBM has their own specialty or mail order pharmacy and has its own employees staffing that pharmacy, filling a specialty or mail order prescription is incurred claims. When the PBM is processing claims or conducting some other sort of activity, it's administrative in nature. And so it's difficult, according to the commercial guidance, to count 100% of the monies you pay to your PBM as incurred claims. But the guidance also notes that the PBM can do quality improvement activities. So if the PBM is looking and saying, well, there's an adverse drug interaction that's likely to occur given that this member is going to receive two different substances that ought not interact, that's quality improvement. So while you don't count it at incurred claims, it still lives in the numerator, the good side, shall we say, of the MLR. But there's another vehicle that Kevin talked about that's prevalent in California and that exists in other opportunities based on federal guidance when you capitate your providers, when there's a creature of the guidance that has a four-part test called a clinical risk-bearing entity, IPAs can meet that test potentially, or independent practice associations, not the delicious beers that we'll all enjoy after we record this. <laughs> but there are a lot of different entities that might take risk 
And the four-part test in simplified form effectively is that the health plan, the person subject to the MLR requirement, contracts with some other entity to arrange for the delivery or to provide services that that entity bears financial and utilization risk for the delivery or the provision or arranging for the provision of those clinical services to the enrollees, and that that entity does so through a system of integrated care with coordination of care, clinical information sharing. It's fairly broad. And then my favorite, because this is the most challenging, I think, conceptually to wrap your mind around, and then anything other than clinical services that are bundled with that, that are included in the payment, whether it's capitated or fee-for-service, has to be reasonably related or incident to the clinical services and performed on behalf of the entity or the entity's providers, the CRBE, right, not the health plan. What on earth reasonably related or incident to means is left for us to advise people about because the government certainly hasn't gone out there with it. It's not present in any of the audits that have occurred, whether in the commercial or the federal program space. But here I want to throw it to Kevin because Kevin has worked a lot over the past several years helping to both structure these types of arrangements as well as incentive arrangements that work with this, as well as performed investigations to make sure that the bucketing that we talked about earlier has gone according to plan. Thanks, Xavier. So I think that one thing to say about the California market is I think that the assumption has been that the capitated providers in California meet the clinical risk-bearing entity requirements. I know that there's a careful analysis required there. I'm not sure that across the board that the providers and plans in California have given that much thought to it just because they've done this for so long. On the other hand, I think in defense of that, these providers are really sophisticated entities that are paying claims that are integrated financially, at least in some instances clinically. And so my view is that these kinds of fully developed provider networks in California, there's a long history of their operation here, are the kinds of entities that were contemplated with that concept. And so I think that those entities are pretty safely within the definition and the plans and providers in California take advantage of that. It creates some simplification and it creates the kind of integration and that I think is the goal of some of the other programs of the ACA. Kevin, can you talk a little bit about some of the issues that have come into play as you're advising clients on these requirements? With respect to some of the other issues that come into play for a plan, whether they're in California or elsewhere, as to whether the expenses they're paying a provider get to be counted, I think there's a number of other factors. When you're, for example, let's say you're concerned about your medical loss ratio and you're afraid that you're going to exceed the levels, or I guess the correct terminology would be that you would be below the levels, so you'd be below 85%, therefore have an obligation to repay money to an agency or members. There's often efforts to say, okay, well, we'd rather pay our providers that money than pay it back. Our providers then are happy and they're able to go out and potentially hire new doctors to provide additional services to our members. 
And so that's a good thing. And it, generally, we're comfortable that meets the requirements if done correctly. However, often you've got other programs involved. You've got commercial membership. You've got Medicare membership, you've got Medicaid membership, and you've got Medicaid membership in different categories. And so if you're paying money to a provider, you've got to be careful that you're paying money, the money you're using to count as a claims expense is actually going for claims that are related to the membership that your medical loss ratio is surrounding. So in other words, if you're paying extra money that's actually going to benefit a Medicare program and you then can't count that as an expense on the Medicaid program. So that's one issue we've seen that some of our clients have had to manage around. And as we've looked to see whether our clients have met their requirements, that's one of the issues we focus on. Another issue that can come into play is that some of the health plans have affiliates that are actually providers. And this was an issue that came up in connection with a famous case in Florida involving a particular health plan that ended up having to pay some significant penalties, including having some of their executives serve some jail time. So that's never a good thing for your client. And the issue there is if you're paying expenses to an affiliated provider entity, you have to be very careful about how you account for that. Generally, in our experience, the expectation is that you would pay that provider consistent with how you pay other providers in your network. And often there's guidance from the state or from whatever agency you're working with that allows you to pay an affiliated provider and count that as a medical claim, but it does require you to pay that provider and account for that provider's claims consistent with the way you pay other providers in your network. And so one thing that you have to be extremely careful about in this area is making sure your payments to your affiliated providers are consistent with payments to non-affiliated providers. That's a great point, Kevin, because as you know, in the Medicare Advantage program and the bid pricing tool, when you have a related party arrangement, one of the mechanisms you can justify to CMS the pricing arrangement you have between the health plan and its related party is to point to the data, the commercial data that exists showing what the related party does when it services unrelated entities. So if you were to have a provider component of your ultimate corporate parent, you can say, well, this provider also services the Joe Records health plan and charges X, Y, and Z. And so what I'm reporting as a charge is a bona fide expense. It's not a sweetheart deal designed to inflate my bid and or have the consequence of ginning up my MLR performance. One of the other hazards that you note when thinking about these different programs that I want to call out, we've been very precise when we're talking about what the commercial guidance says versus these other programs. And there's a reason for that. The commercial guidance is about the commercial market, individual, small group, large group. Medicare Advantage in Part D published guidance that expressly adopted 
many aspects of this societal guidance, of this commercial guidance, including that four-part clinical risk-bearing entity test. But Medicaid did not. In the mega reg, in the preamble in the Federal Register, as you're leafing through it, you'll see when you get to the CRBE test and medical loss ratio, that CMS says something to the effect as follows. This test is not inconsistent with the rules that we've created, but we leave it to each individual state to decide whether they're going to apply or adopt or use that test. And so that creates some challenges with entities like what Kevin has been talking about here who have multiple lines of business where you can't count monies that you're spending on one activity or cost across all the lines of business. You actually have to allocate it. So if you're investing in improved encounter data from a provider, you create an incentive for the provider to beef up the quality and sufficiency of the information it's giving you, both for HEDIS scores, perhaps for Medicare Advantage to improve your star ratings, but it also inures to your benefit because of the Medicaid managed care business that that provider might service for you, as well as any commercial patients. You need to be able to bucket appropriately what amount of that payment goes towards which program. And then you need to appropriately determine within each of those programs, is this a quality improvement activity or is this something else? Is this a provider incentive payment? And these are complicated questions. Kevin, any final thoughts to leave us with? This is an area that to date, there hasn't been a lot of FCA action, at least in recent years, in terms of enforcement. However, it's ripe for enforcement. And as the federal government seeks to clamp down on the expenses it's paying for Medicaid managed care in particular, I think that the risk that health plans could be prosecuted for False Claims Act violations in this area is fairly high. And so I think the plans need to be very careful in this space. The fact that there hasn't been a lot of prosecution to date shouldn't be cause for being casual on compliance in this area. And I think we'll leave it there. Thank you both for joining us. Payers, Providers, and Patients Oh My is a podcast brought to you by Kroll and Mooring LLP. You can find more information at kroll.com slash healthcare podcast. Thank you.